when, when I was in college, um, this was back in 2000, I don't know, nine, eight, somewhere in there, um, we, we had a chance to pick a mission trip, pick a location that we're going to go to. And so me and like 20 other guys, we got to go to Israel, which is really cool. Uh, I don't know uh, if you've ever seen pictures of Israel or if you've ever thought about going. I would love uh, if there's any elders in here, like if we want to do a mission trip to uh, Israel, I will lead it. I will study it. I will be ready to go. I could go back to Israel at, at a heartbeat. I love it. While I was there, um, there were uh, missiles flying over the border and they were hitting. And it was really funny because while I'm standing in Jerusalem, I'm getting phone calls from people like, are you okay? Did they blow you up? I'm like, well, no, I picked up the phone. Like, we're fine. Uh, because American news was really blowing out of proportion what was going on. They, they would stand in Jerusalem, which is where I was at, and they would kind of like duck behind walls and pretend like they were literally being fired at. Nobody in Jerusalem was being fired at. It was way south of there. But when, when in Israel, you get to go through and you, you grab the Bible and you walk around and you, you see like Ezekiel was on this mountain. Like, well, okay, let's go climb that mountain. And so you climb the mountain that Ezekiel was on. And you, you may know the story where Ezekiel calls down fire from heaven and burns the offering and all these other prophets, they freak out. I, I got to stand there. Um, Ezekiel wasn't there while I was standing there, but it was really cool to read the story as I'm standing there, right? Um, and, and you may have heard the word Armageddon. Uh, I didn't know this until I was in Israel. The word Armageddon is a Hebrew word, har meaning mountain, gadon meaning mountain of Gideon. Uh, it's a literal place. I got to stand on a mountaintop and look down into a valley that's called Armageddon and like, oh, that's, that's really, really cool. And so uh, as you go through the tour, there, there are these high points that you want to see. Like you want to see uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, right? You go to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, and they have olive trees growing there that they date older than 2,000 years. So literally speaking, in the Garden of Gethsemane, unless it's just a tourist trap thing, uh, you're looking at a tree that Jesus would have walked past as he was going to the Garden of Gethsemane. How cool is that? That is really, really great. Um, and uh, of course, uh, as Easter's coming up, you, you know, the resurrection, like the two has to be a major spot that people want to go to. Like, could you, you go to the tomb and they tell you like, here's where the rock would have been. And this is the hole. This is the cave that they put Jesus on. Maybe this table has uh, been rebuilt. I don't know, but this is the table that they laid Jesus on. And as we're getting ready for this, we've gone up some hills, down some hills. I don't know if you know this, Israel's the desert. Like it's, it's hot and dry and you get thirsty and get dehydrated. So 20 guys from Southeast Texas wear humidity. Like you don't even need to drink water around here. You just, you just suck it out of the air and you can survive for a couple of weeks. Uh, there, we were not acclimated to the weather. And so we got this one guy with us and he's been struggling with some, you know, like his stomach was hurting. He was, he was really fatigued. And we get to the tomb and the guy is like, okay, and if you look to your right, you see the, uh, the tree here and he's just going on and on. And this guy, he's getting sicker and sicker. And as we approach the tomb, he, he threw up. Just like you got all these churchy people around, you're at the tomb of Jesus, and he his stomach has had enough. And in the guard, uh, excuse me, not the guard, the, the guards are long gone. That's another story. Uh, the uh, the guide, uh, he didn't miss a beat. He didn't he didn't like, oh my gosh, somebody cleaned up. He goes, well, it looks like resurrection power still at work here. Come on, guys, and like he turns and he walks away. And this poor guy, he's so sick, like he runs to the bathroom and he ends up just like, I'll wait on the bus for you guys, go have a good time. But the joke was so good. Like yeah, I, maybe people throw up at the tomb, you know, once a week. I don't know, maybe it happens all the time, but he just didn't miss a beat. He said, well, it looks like the resurrection power is still at work here, and he moved on. What, what I want to talk to us about today, and I know I'm a week early on talking about the resurrection, I just want to maybe take a deep dive and look at the resurrection itself. 
I want to look at why the resurrection is so important to Christians. I want to look at what we believe about the resurrection specifically. Uh, We live in a world where I may use the word resurrection and you may think metaphor. You may think it's a symbol of like new hope and new chance. Uh, this, this may not come as earth-shattering news to anybody in the room. I'm kind of looking around. Uh, Christians believe that Jesus literally died. His body died and his heart quit beating and he was buried for three days. But after three days, he literally came back to life. He was literally resurrected. Not a metaphor for your hopes, not a metaphor. He was literally resurrected. And what we'll find today is that our view of the resurrection, whether it's a big view of the resurrection or a small view of the resurrection, creates in us the expectation of what God can accomplish in our families, what God can accomplish in our lives, what God can accomplish with your own heart. And if if you're like me, sometimes you have these seasons where your heart feels like it's turning to stone and there's no hope other than it turns into a hard rock and just you stop caring about other people. Well, if I have a small view, a metaphorical view of the resurrection, then I have a metaphorical view of God's power in my life to be able to transform me. But if I have a literal view of the resurrection, I literally believe that Jesus was literally raised from the dead, then I believe that Jesus and God has great power to transform me and, as a consequence, transform those around me who trust in his name. So I want to look at the resurrection. Uh, We'll start in 1 Corinthians. We'll bounce around a little bit, but 1 Corinthians 15 is where we'll be. Um, All the passages I'll read today is written by the same guy. His name is Paul. Uh, Paul, uh, he, he uh, as far as we know, did not meet Jesus before Jesus went to the cross. He didn't meet Jesus before the resurrection. He probably heard about Jesus and knew some things about Jesus because Jesus was kind of a celebrity uh, in Israel, but, but we don't see Paul ever meeting Jesus. It's not until after Jesus has already been resurrected that Paul meets the resurrected Jesus. And so Paul, he, he starts to make this argument in, in 1 Corinthians, and he'll make it elsewhere that we'll read, how important the resurrection is. Uh, the church in Corinth, the, the, the group of people that he's writing this to, they are a church that they don't quite have it right. They've got a lot of problems going on. Uh, they can't figure out who's supposed to eat, which meats, like that meat was sacrificed to that idol, am I allowed to eat it? They argued all the time in this church. Uh, there were people in this church that like, oh, God gives me grace, God forgives sins, sweet, let's go have a party, let's sin as much as we can. And Paul's like, whoa, you don't really understand what you're saying, let's let's bring that horse back to the to the barn for a second. There was a, a story in, in you, you see that, that Paul, <laughs> the horse in the barn got you? It's okay. It's all right. I'll do that some more. Uh, I like that. Uh, there's a story in, uh, uh, Paul addresses in First Corinthians that uh, there was a blended family, um, uh, a dad remarried, and so he had kids, and so these kids now have a stepmom, and there's this kid who's attracted to a stepmom, and he's asking Paul, like, am I allowed to marry my stepmom? And Paul's like, what are you saying? Like, you're, you're bonkers. They were so far off base that, that they didn't they didn't know. And so Paul, he writes 1 Corinthians, and we're at the end of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 15. There's only one chapter after this. And he spends the entire chapter like, guys, we've got to get the resurrection right. We've got to know that Jesus was literally resurrected. And it matters. It's not just a historical fact, but it matters. So we'll start reading in, in verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, Now, I would remind you, brothers, and he's reminding this church that has all of their problems and all of their mistakes on understanding grace. I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. I'm I'm just going to tell you the thing that I've already told you, the thing that you said back to me that you believe. And then he adds this little bit, because Paul is... he, he. 
I don't know, Paul, Paul gets a little salty sometimes. Uh, you have anybody in your life that kind of th- say things out of the side of their mouth just to like, let you know, like, I see what's going on. That's what Paul does. He says, uh, the, the being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, and then hyphen, unless you believed in vain, unless what you said was useless, unless you lied to me, uh, but if you really believe the gospel that I taught you, let's, let's go back over that and remember that together. Verse three says, for I delivered to you as a first importance, the very first thing that was important for you to know, what I also received. And I remember Paul is a guy who he didn't meet Jesus during his ministry. And so when he says he received it, he heard from somebody else the story of Jesus, the story of him going to the cross, the story of his resurrection. This is what I've also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Yes, Jesus literally died. The purpose of his death was to pay for our sins, and he's pointing to himself. He's pointing to all of the Corinthians, and he'd point to us Americans, and he'd say, Jesus had to die so that payment could be made for our sins in accordance with scriptures. It was planned a long time ago. He was following the game plan that was set up before the foundations of the earth, Paul would say later. But in accordance with scriptures, verse four, that he was buried, literally he went into the grave, he was buried, and comma, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It shouldn't have been a surprise that Jesus was raised from the dead. It shouldn't be a surprise that there was a resurrection because it was, God's like calling his shots from the beginning of the Old Testament there's going to be a resurrection. And here comes Jesus. He says, I'm going to go away for a little while. I'll come back in three days. And I trust any guy who can just point out and say, hey, I'm going to die, but I'll see you guys in a week. And then a week comes and he comes, whatever he says after that, and he comes back in a week, whatever that man says, I'll do it. I'll, I, will, I will become a hugger. Uh, I will start rooting for, you know, the Houston Rockets. I'll do whatever that guy says, no matter how ridiculous it sounds. Uh, because if you can say, I'm going to die and I'm going to be resurrected and he comes back, yes, I trust that guy. And what Paul says is that's exactly what Jesus did. In accordance with the scriptures, he, was, he died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. Verse five, and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas was a nickname given to Peter. Now, if you were here last week, uh, Chris Doris was teaching, and he read something out of Second Peter. And there's this, uh, not everybody knows this, because um, we like to think of like all of the people, especially in the Bible, who followed Jesus. They were super nice, and they got along really, really well. Paul and Peter didn't always get along, all right? So there's, there's some, some places in Scripture where Peter was doing some things that he shouldn't do, and Paul was like, hey, listen, you sinner, and like corrects him in the spot in a crowd of people. He's like, who are you? Who are you to talk to me? I knew Jesus face to face. There was some tension between Paul and Peter. Last week when Chris was teaching, he read that passage out of Second Peter, and Peter is remembering Paul, and he's like, you know, you guys should listen to Paul. He says some really confusing things. In fact, I have a hard time understanding what he says, but he loves loves Jesus and you know you can trust what he says like even even one of the disciples of Jesus reads Paul is like I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, he's, he's, he's kind of went over my head. And so here's, here's Paul, and he's referring back to Cephas. He says that Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Some, some have died, he would say. And so when, when Paul writes this to the Corinthians, we're probably, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, I didn't look it up, so somewhere in the 15-year mark after the resurrection. So 15 years after the resurrection, he's remembering, he said, okay, Jesus came back and he appeared to uh, Peter, he appeared to 12 disciples, and then he appeared to 500 people. Most of these 500 people are alive right now. If you need their names, go ask them. This is not 
the words of a man who believes in a metaphorical resurrection. When you start naming names of people who could vouch for what you're saying, you're not trying to build a lie or build a cute story that we get to celebrate every Easter. He's trying to say that literally a resurrection happened. Now, no, no matter what you believe, uh, if, if, you, if you're like, Jesse, I, I can't. Resurrections are a little bit too much. Okay. No matter what you believe uh, literally happened, actually happened uh, on that time, uh, all historians agree, both Christians and atheists, something big happened around the resurrection. Everything changed in the community. If, if, if the Christians just took his body, I don't know if anybody watches like crime scenes, uh, or crime, I don't watch crime scenes, that's creepy, uh, criminal television, uh, it, you know, forensic files or something like that. What I've come to learn from watching forensic files, it's hard to hide a body. <laughs> like, you, you can hide a body for a day or two, but eventually the body shows up. Jesus's bodies never showed up. If, if, if the disciples just hid the body of Jesus and he wasn't literally resurrected and they did that for some kind of, uh, you know, propaganda stunt, it wouldn't take long for the authorities to say, and here we go, we found him, he's still dead. They didn't find him, they didn't. In fact, if you read the story at the end of Matthew of the resurrection, you even see that Matthew recorded the plot that the Romans had. Like, okay, listen, just tell them, just tell them the disciples punched you, knocked you out, and while you were asleep, took the body away. The disciples, the people that he's talking about right here, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene did not punch a Roman centurion guarding a temple or guarding a tomb and steal a body. It's just, it's, it's not probable. And if it really happened, it, maybe a day or two would have gone by and they would have presented the body of Jesus, but they never did because it literally happened. And Paul, he looks at it, he's like, listen, don't just take my word for it. He appeared to Peter, he appeared to 12, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Verse seven, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, all of us, like, we, you know, James, uh, uh, you know, John, we all saw him. And then last of all, verse 8, uh, he says, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church and uh, the church of God. He's remembering how big of a jerk he was. Um, I heard a, a pastor say, this was during, like, when we had Afghanistan wars and Iraq wars, he, he would say something like, Paul was essentially like an ISIS member. Like, he, he would rally troops to go on the hunt to kill people. That's what Paul, like, in his fervor for, for loving legalism and loving the law and hating grace and believing that Jesus wasn't who they claimed to be, he would go around and try to rally people. Hey, you guys want to go throw some rocks at Billy? Come on, I got the rocks, I'll hold your coat for you so you don't, like, throw out your arm. I don't want you catching a cramp. That was Paul's job as he saw it. And yet this moment happens in Paul's life. What transforms a man with that much hatred? Honestly, what transforms a man with that much hatred to become the thing that he hates unless he met a risen, resurrected Jesus who said, Paul, why do you persecute me? Why do you go against me and what I'm doing? In fact, you're not going to go against me anymore. I'm going to call you to be one of my apostles. Paul's looking at that. He's like, I, I don't deserve that at all. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, Pi Pi. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Just You guys need to remember who I am and what I came from. You need to remember that there are 500 other people who saw Jesus alive. You need to remember that I'm saying the same thing all the other apostles said. The, the resurrection wasn't a metaphor. It was a newspaper headline that actually happened. And now Paul says, now that we've established... We're talking about a literal resurrection. Here's, here's what he says about the resurrection. 
We caught that on video, by the way, uh, that I caught that cat. I feel good about that. I'll, I'll get that clip later that I just ninja it. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, we've already established that he is being proclaimed as raised from the dead, but if, if he's being proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's useless. And your faith is in vain. And your faith is useless. He's saying, we have to believe in a literal resurrection or else everything we're doing is useless. You sitting in this chair is useless. You could be mowing your grass. There's a lot of things more important to do if the resurrection didn't happen. Fishing would be more important to do if the resurrection didn't happen. Going and having a donut and enjoying a weekend would be more important to do if the resurrection didn't happen. He says these people, they, they, would, they, would, they would deny the real power of a resurrection, but still go through all the motions of going through church. How often, and nobody raise your hands, but how often do we do that? That we go through the motions of going through church. We go through the motions because it's what we've done or it's our heritage or it's what we've grown up doing. And not because we believe that the literal resurrection has happened and therefore we have literal hope. That there is real transformation power available in our lives. Paul is challenging the Corinthians and as consequence challenging Carpenter's way that we stop just going through the motions and we start literally being transformed by this resurrection. We start seeing difference happen in our lives and in our hearts, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our community. I don't know if you know this, there's a lot of broken people 20 feet outside this door. This community is hurting. Uh, maybe it always has. I don't know that it's unique to a certain time or place. We need real transformation power, not just a metaphor that we act a different way and we stop smoking cigarettes and stop cussing. No, there has to be real change. He says in verse 15, we have even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that dead are not raised. He said, if there is no resurrection and we've been telling you that God raised Jesus from the dead, we're making God out to be a liar. We're not even doing God service. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is useless. And you, he says, are still in your sins. If Jesus did not literally raise from the dead, we all are left to pay for our mistakes with a holy and righteous God. That is terrifying. But because, the, I guess the opposite, you can draw the conclusion, but because I believe that Jesus did literally raise from the dead, for him to forgive sins is a, probably a much lesser accomplishment. I can stand here as a forgiven Jesse, not under the guilt and shame of my mistakes. But because Jesus is raised again, I can walk in newness of life, Paul would say later. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He looks at the church and the condition of the church and what the church goes through. The, thing, the things that Christians do to try to be holy and try to be righteous, the things that we give up, the, 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 the sacrifices we make when Paul would say that we take up our cross and, and we die to ourselves every day, those, those phrases. He says, if Jesus did not literally raise from the dead, what we do, people should be pity. We, we look pitiful. That we would be so deceived by a literal resurrection that we, would, that we would go through all of those motions for what? For nothing. If our only hope is on this side of life, or rather on this side of death, if that is our only hope and resurrection doesn't happen and Jesus didn't resurrect, 
Paul's like, man, there are other things that would be better to do. But he would say, and he's going to say it right here. I'll just read it. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This idea of first fruits, it's a, uh, obviously a farming term. The first fruits would be like the first harvest, the first like grape or the first apple, the first whatever that comes off the tree. There's also like an inheritance term in here. I don't know if you've, ever, uh, if you've ever lost a loved one and there was a will and you had to go through the... the, the, the uh, man, I need a lawyer. That, that probate, thank you. Uh, you go through the probate and you have to, like, there's an inheritance that happens. Um, a lot of times there's a first fruits of that inheritance. Here, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and start emptying out grandma's closet. You get this, but we're going to work on the probate side of things. There's more coming, but this is the first fruits of the inheritance. And, and what Paul says right here is that Jesus was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When we look at the literal resurrection of Jesus, we celebrate because we know that when we lose our loved ones, we don't lose them forever. We celebrate because whenever our body starts to fail us, we know that this body isn't our final resting place. This isn't our final body. Uh, we, we will have a resurrected body. Jesus is the first fruits of that and we celebrate it. Verse 21, for as by a man, he'll, he'll talk about Adam here in a second. So he's talking about Adam. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Paul's head, uh, and I, I was teaching the teenagers from Romans the same thing last week, is Paul looks at all of humanity as like the pyramid, the family tree, and at the very top, Adam. And what did Adam pass on to us as his inheritance? Adam sinned and he passed on death. And that death has permeated all of humanity in a multitude of ways. Paul would say that it's the reason why, you know, there's so much brokenness. It's the reason why the world groans as, as uh, uh, childbirth. It's, it's the reason why everything we see seems to be a little dysfunctional. is because Adam started and death permeated. But he says there's a new Adam. That Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, is the new Adam. And so instead of passing down death through the family tree, Jesus Christ passes down life, real life, transforming life, because he literally was resurrected from the dead. It's, he draws this connection there. I, I want to look at two more passages before I finish. If you will, turn to Philippians. As I turn. I like this passage of Philippians. Uh, one, it talks about resurrection. Two, it has a bad word in it. And, it, you know, I teach teenagers, so they love it when there's bad words. Philippians 3, starting in verse 8. Most of this you, you'll recall, but I want to highlight the, the piece where he brings up the resurrection. Um, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 says this. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let me pause for a second. Um, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He still got a little youthfulness in him. He's still free. He's still, he's still like running around in the, in the streets of Antioch and going to Ephesus and all the different... He's on his missionary trips. But when he writes Philippians, he's at the end of his life. He's a little less salty. He's a little older, a little wiser, a little bit more retrospective. Perspective. Paul dies soon after he writes Philippians. And he looks at the, the, what, what he left behind in his life, all the things that he gave up. And he says, I, I gave up all of that. I counted it all as loss for the sake of Christ. I've suffered the loss of all things, he says, and I count them as rubbish. That's the bad word. English gives rubbish. There is an English word for it that I'm not going to say. Uh, and so he says he, he looks at it all and he counts it all as bleepity bleep. He looks at it and he's like, everything else outside of Jesus and his resurrected power in my life has just been rubbish. It's been a bunch of bleep. 
And he's sitting in prison. Prisoners talk bad, I guess. But he looks at it and he says, in order that I may gain Christ. He says, the sweetness of knowing the resurrection of Christ has made everything else useless to me. All of the accomplishments, all of the world traveling that did, all of the money that he's raised, all of, all of the things that people say, I want to be like Paul. People used to fight over who would baptize them, Paul or Apollos. I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos. All of that, he says, was useless because Jesus means that much more. He keeps going. He says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, he says, that I may know him and what? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The guy is sitting in prison getting ready to die and he's pondering, what do I want to know about Jesus? I want to know him. I want to know the goodness of who Jesus is, and I want to know the power of his resurrection, probably because he's thinking, I don't have much longer before I stop breathing. I could use a little power of resurrection right now. And may share in his sufferings, he says, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain what? The resurrection from the dead. You know, you know, you can't find a more hopeless group of people than people who are on death row. In fact, if you ever watch any prison movie, anybody like Shawshank Redemption, you know, like you have, you have prison movies where people have life or they have death sentences or they're, they're, they can't get out until they die or something like that. And uh, what is hope to them? Hope is scary. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a conversation point every time. They, they, say, they say, you know, hope, hope is what, what is damaging to you. In Shawshank Redemption, you have Red, Morgan Freeman's character. He's talking to Andy uh, Dufresne. I'm doing this. This isn't in the notes. I'm just winging this. Uh, he's talking to Andy Dufresne, and Andy Dufresne's like, I think I'm going to get out of here. And, and uh, Morgan Freeman says, no, hope is dangerous. You don't want hope in here. You need to give up. What, what causes a man like Paul who's rotting in a, in a jail cell to look around and have hope. It's because he has a, a literal view of the resurrection. And he says, kill me if you want, but it's not over for me, buddy. There's a part two. There's, Paul, the sequel is coming next, right? Paul can face immense amounts of suffering because he has a literal view of the resurrection power of Jesus. You want to fortify yourself for whatever sideways thing that comes at you? Whatever phone call in the middle of the night that messes up the next several years of your life, you want to fortify yourself from getting that call from the doctor that you didn't want. You want to fortify yourself from that conversation with your spouse that you knew was coming, but is really scary. And you didn't think that you don't know that you're going to make it. You want to fortify yourself from immense amounts of suffering. Christians who have a high view of the resurrection, who believe literally that God has that much power, can weather immense amounts of suffering. They can go through anything. And do it with a smile. No matter how bad it is, no matter how bad the, 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 the radiation is treating their body, no, bad, uh, no matter how bad the people that they loved are treating them now, no matter how many lies are said about those people, those people who believe literally that Jesus was raised from the dead and that this is a temporary place with temporary sufferings and there's a future glory with future hope with a literal resurrection, those people are the people I like hanging out with. Those people do not get wavered every time a wave shows up. They can make it. I'm going to look at one more verse, if you bear with me. Same guy wrote uh, 1 Corinthians. He wrote Philippians. Now, we'll turn to Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 8. One verse. Ch chapter 8, verse 11. I'll give you a second. 
Romans, by the way, is, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know if you're allowed, especially on the stage, to pick a favorite book of the Bible. So I can't say it's my favorite, but, you know, it's a good book. I like Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. He's been talking about the Holy Spirit. He's been talking about Christ's payment for sins. And he says this in verse 11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. When Paul, when Paul decides to talk about the resurrection and he really starts hammering it down, he believes that after his death, there's a little resurrection, but he also believes that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in the Christian's body. That you have access to it now, today, right now. You got a hard conversation coming tomorrow, you want to do it with your power, or do you want to do it with the same power that can raise dead people? I'm going with the second one. I don't know. Like, I, I, I think that's the better option. So somewhere along the way, uh, I ended up with a, a bunch of DeWalt tools. I was working on the house after uh, uh, one of the floods, and I ended up with DeWalt tools and DeWalt batteries. I know, like, if you're, if you're like a handyman, you're looking at me like, look at that sissy buying DeWalt. You know, he doesn't know what, like, you need to get Milwaukee. I understand. I'm just not rich like y'all. But uh, I ended up with DeWalt tools, and I ended up with DeWalt batteries. I ended up at a pawn shop one day, and they had a stack of all these DeWalt batteries for, like, super cheap. So now I have a ton of batteries, and so I kept increasing. I just stayed with DeWalt because these batteries fit with the tool. And uh, lithium batteries, they're, they're pretty good. They, they run until they, they stop, and uh, that doesn't make any sense, of course, all batteries run until they stop. Lithium batteries tend to put out all of their output until the last 10% of the battery, and then there's a little bit of a drain, then all of a sudden it's off. It's not like a steady like run down like the batteries in a radio or something. And so um, I have this habit of I, I, I just don't always charge my batteries. And, and I'll, so I'll grab a reciprocating saw, and I need to cut this thing, and I go and I'll cut it, and I'll pull the trigger, and the saw is just, just it's getting it. Is doing the job. Are things getting cut away? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I could have done this faster if I just pulled the saw blade out and just did it with my hand because the battery's so low. I have access to power and I'm not getting to it. So I just sit there. And sometimes if you're working a lot at home, uh, and maybe some of you are better than me, but if you're working a lot, I don't realize the slow like end of a battery. Like I don't realize that the tool is slowing down on me. I'm, I'm, I'm drilling things in. I'm like, this should be done already. Maybe it's just too, too hard. Or maybe the saw, you know, it should have already been cut through. I, I don't know. And eventually the thing dies. And I'm like, well, I need a new battery. And as I've already said, I have a stack of pawn shop batteries in my garage. So I go and I grab one of the random batteries, fully charged, and I put it in there. I drop that saw blade on there and I press the trigger and in half a second, it finishes the job. I've been sitting there for 30 minutes milking the last little piece of energy in this battery. when all I had to do was go back to the source, get a fresh recharge, zip, and the job is done. I do it every time. And I'm always surprised. I don't know why. You would think, like, hey, Jesse, you, come on. You've done that 12 times now. Like, you know, get to the good battery. Paul says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the de dead dwells in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. You have access to that power. My problems, they're sometimes small. Sometimes my problems are bigger than me. I've never had a problem bigger than resurrecting a man from the dead. I just haven't ran into that one, thankfully. So my access to power, I have more power than I have problems. But I tend to do in my spiritual life the same thing I do with my DeWalt batteries. I just, I just go until I can't go anymore. 
I go on my own power, my own strength, and I keep pushing forward, trying to, to make this conversation work, trying to make this relationship better, trying to, to help my son navigate, you know, friendships and schools. You know, parenting is really hard in that way. Trying to, to navigate this out there. And I'll go, and I'll go, and I'll get more and more run down. And then almost in desperation, Jesse stops and turns to the source of the power. Just God help me. Please, would you? Can you resurrect in me a little bit more energy? And I'm like that second DeWalt battery. I'm like, all of a sudden, it's just so much easier to deal with the junk of life when I tap into the power that was already there. This is the reason why I wanted to talk about this before Easter. I'm not naive. Like, resurrection messages are for next week, right? What are you doing, Jesse? You didn't look at the calendar. No, I know. And next week, we're going to have a ton of guests here. We're going to have people that are your family members, your coworkers. I'm hoping I, I, I invited a guy to church uh, I talked to him just a few days ago, and he's just like, I, I, I need a church. I feel far from God. I, I would love for, I hope he comes. I don't know if he will. But if I come and I invite friends here that are far from God, and I believe in a metaphorical resurrection of Jesus, then the best I can hope for them when they get here is that they just like make a friend. Uh, maybe they're not as lonely. Maybe they stop cussing a little bit more. Like you just get a little bit like behavior changes. But if I believe in a literal resurrection of power, bringing people to hear about the literal raised Jesus, I can believe so much more about them. I believe that, that, that the resurrection power of Jesus can heal broken hearts. Marriages that are so far past salvation, so far past uh, uh, reconciliation, I believe that the resurrection power can bring marriages back from the dead. Do you? I believe that resurrection power, literal resurrection power, can fix relationships between sons and fathers. Can give you the courage to tell the boss that that unethical thing that they wanted you to do, you're not going to do that. Because you trust in the literal resurrection of Jesus. Last week, um, I challenged us that, that we would begin praying about one person, thinking about them. Uh, I just want to tweak that. I want to continue that. I ask that you would do that for the few weeks leading up to Easter. You begin praying for that one person. I want to, I want to tweak that and say this. That you begin praying for their real transformation. That they would taste and see that the Lord is good and not just change their behavior and have a short season where you know, they make a few better decisions, but they would literally find a hope for their souls and guilt and shame melt away. Crooked paths in their life, even though they were the ones who possibly crookedified them, that's not a verb, uh, are made straight because the gospel has the power to do that. That our loved ones, our brothers and our sisters who wrestle with addictions, they would, they would see that, you know, I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to hide from my pain. There's healing. Maybe get some help. What I want is for, for us to see a group of people that aren't just metaphorically changed. There's too much of that outside. Put on some makeup. I want to see people that are literally transformed by the power of Jesus. Here are three thoughts I want to close with. Um, just as we, as we ponder this. Uh, the first is this, I said this at the beginning, is Christians who delight most in the resurrection of Christ are the least rocked by the circumstances of their lives. Christians who see that Jesus' resurrection was real and believe that they have that power alive in them through the Holy Spirit 
are the least rocked whenever they get that phone call from the doctor, when they, when they get that call from their spouse, when they hear that their loved one was in a wreck. Sure, life continues to happen and suffering continues to happen. Paul surely knew that when he wrote those words, but he believed that the resurrection was sufficient. The second thought is this. Um, resurrections are impossible. <laughs> Uh, if, if, you're, if you're like a, you know, uh, a non-believer, if you're an atheist, you're just like, I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. Therefore, resurrections are impossible. Well, I believe uh, that our God does the impossible. And I believe that uh, a day will come where we will see a ton more resurrections, but that, that will be the end of time. Um, God does the impossible. It's unlikely. Uh, nobody, uh, nobody saw Jesus hanging on the cross and be like, man, that's nothing. He's going to get down. Everybody was terrified. Everybody was brokenhearted. Even though Jesus said, I'm coming back. Here I come. Jesus did the impossible. Historically, uh, it can't be denied that something happened around the resurrection that changed the course of everything. And Christianity was just one strange offshoot religion that became the dominant religion of the entire known world shortly after those moments. They never could produce a body. And during the first writings of the Gospels, if you look at Luke, he did the same thing that Paul did. He's naming names of people that if you didn't believe the words that he was saying, you would just get on your camel or whatever and ride over there and talk to Bill, and like, Bill, do you see him? Oh, I saw him. Okay. Like, they were naming names. It does not sound and does not read as if someone who's trying to maybe twist the truth and have like a metaphorical, he's naming names because it literally happened. Our God does the impossible. Which brings me to the third question or the third kind of thought here. It's like, what, what impossible thing could you use a little resurrection power in today? Surely there's something that's just beyond your control, beyond your power to influence, to change, to do something about. Don't be like Jesse's DeWalt tools and just like, just one cut at a time, week after week, you're just getting after it. Maybe, just maybe, you turn that issue, that impossible thing, that problem, that loved one, that, that workspace situation. You turn this community that needs hope, you just say, you know what? It's impossible that God would save that entire hotel complex over there and, and their business model change. I'm not going to say much more about their business model than that. Except that God can do the impossible. How awesome would it be if there's just this change in our community? We see people find hope in Jesus. We see people not addicted and not in bondage to meth. We see the homeless communities. They find hope they find a, a victory over shame and guilt. Your loved ones who go from relationship to relationship to relationship because they think that the next guy or the next girl is going to make them whole would find instead that the cross was there to make you whole and the resurrection power is there. All of those things sound impossible on the front end, but our God does the impossible. So what impossible thing are you willing to give God control of today? I want to pray. And uh, I will dismiss you uh, five minutes early. And so that will be, uh, you know, you can send me like a, chocolate candy bar or something, if that's awesome to you. Pray with me. Father, uh, this morning, we're looking next week as we celebrate Easter, as we celebrate uh, Jesus's resurrection. Um, I pray, Father, that we, would, that we would be a group that focuses on that resurrection power, that we would see things in our lives that they seem impossible by our measure, um, but God, that we would start to trust you with them,
Your word says that we should cast our cares to you. So Lord, help us. Uh, help us trust you and take you at your word. I pray, Father, for Carpenter's Way, that as we embrace the resurrection, as we're reminded of a literal resurrection, that we would bring hope to those that just seem so far from you, that we would see transformation in their lives, and that you would raise a, a large community of people who have found hope in the cross because Jesus overcame. Lord, we love you, and we pray this in his name. Amen.